Hey again, everyone. Uh, Eric Slater here from Epic Tales of History and Too Young for This Trek with another special bonus episode of Podcasters Assemble. Uh, today, I'm joined by my good friend and fellow Bond addict, Justin Aki. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Justin Aki, one half significant Otico, graphic designer extraordinaire. So yeah, I'm glad we were able to take the time to finally jump into this conversation. Uh, today, we're talking about the Bond books. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize there were this many. Like, I knew about the Ian Fleming books, but there's a lot of post-Fleming books. Uh, going just by my Goodreads account, I mean, when I was clicking through, I saw like Bond 43, Bond 45. There are a <laughs> lot of books, and I'm not even getting into the Junior Bond. Side note, there's a novel series called the Miss Money Pe Money, Perry, Money Perry Diaries. That sounds insane, and I want to find them. There's only three of them, but it's yeah, her side, it's her side of the Bond stuff, and apparently she's a spy too. But that's that's a whole other topic. <laughs> totally. Your focus was you were going to read the Ian Fleming books, right? Yeah, exactly. I really wanted to dive into a lot of the original books. Ian Fleming started this series in the '50s. The movies didn't start coming out till the '60s, and at that point, Bond was kind of an established character, but. Prior to that, like the character kind of evolved a little bit. When you read those early novels, it doesn't read like a typical Bond story. The character isn't fully fleshed out. There aren't all the tropes and you can kind of see like how far the characters come. Like he starts out like he's not as confident. He's not as put together, you know? No, I, I agree. Um, I've been reading all of the post Bond novels and not, not all of them because they're insane amount, but there's about seven authors who have written Bond after Ian Fleming. Uh, between short stories, uh, a couple of novels, there's, I mean, John Gardner wrote uh, 14 novels. I mean, that's, that's, that's an insane nuts. amount. I, mean, I think only, I mean, Ian Fleming only wrote like nine, 10. I'm not including short stories, but I'm sorry. He, there's not that many novels from Ian Fleming originally. So, uh, I mean, I could see the callbacks from what you've explained before. We had a couple of talks before that he's more of a detective, less than a spy. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. A yeah. lot of the early novels, they really like a lot of those early detective stories, like a lot of those uh, crime novels that later got made into, you know, film noir movies. <laughs> so it's it's really strange when you compare that to some of the, um, the original Sean Connery movies. There's a little bit of it in like Dr. No and From Russia With Love, but yeah, it just, uh, it, it's a little odd if you're not used to that. Yeah, um, before we get into your novels, I just want to say that some of the novels I've read so far, after going back and reading like the Wikipedia about them and reading like the reviews at the time about them, some of yeah. them were straight callbacks to the way Ian Fleming wrote. In fact, Raymond Benson was actually given the option to continue on from the previous author or start anywhere he wanted. So he took some of the previous author's stuff, uh, which was John Gardner, but he went back to the way that Ian Fleming used to write Bond and just brought it up to contemporary. He ignored the way the movie set up things. So I'm That's anxious awesome. to hear how, I mean, obviously in the 50s, Bond, oh, you had like six novels come out in the 50s and I mean, yeah. what's his name, I'm uh, sorry, uh, Ian Fleming didn't even get, the, he only got to see the first two movies or the first movie in general. So I, I can so. only imagine what he wrote all those novels before the movie. So there was no mm -hmm. spy thriller stuff. We had spy movies at the time, and we also had a couple of TV shows. I mean, The Avengers came out in 61, 62 as well. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got to think, they were playing off the spy thriller and not the novel. Exactly. So, yeah, I haven't read any of the newer books. I'm really excited to hear more about uh, which ones might be worth checking out. I read all these in a week. 
it's it's cheap though because all my books were like 200 pages so i didn't really have to work hard i can read 100 pages at lunch and then i'd finish it yeah. at, after dinner and then i'd start the next book so yeah no it's, that's why um, it's fresh, it's easy, and I only had to write down the plot points just so I can jog my memory. I started with the first three Bond novels, uh, Casino Rail, Live and Let Die, and Moonraker. Um, and then I went ahead and read all of Ian Fleming's Bond short stories, which those are a mixed bag. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read them. They're, they're all over the place. <laughs> I actually haven't read a single Ian Fleming novel. Uh, what? Bond or anything. Serious? No, no, 100% series. And since we decided to set ourselves up for the uh, this uh, challenge or this episode, I kind of stayed away from them because I didn't want it to interfere with my reading of the novels that I read. Understandable. I also, I'm about halfway finished uh, with Thunderball. And I know I've read from Russia with Love, but it was years ago and I barely remember anything about it. I think it's interesting with Thunderball. I'm, I want to hear what your thoughts are when we get to that novel, because Thunderball Definitely. is a movie that's been recreated twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know if the novel is even close to the movie or either movie. I don't know. You know, that's, that's, where I'm, that's where I'm getting at. We'll get to it. Before you so, completely get into it, I want to point out that I actually have a very strong martini right now. So it's... Uh, I got that in my hand, taking a is sip. Is it a so. vodka martini? It's a vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Nice. Which I'll get into that because one of the novels I did read is a prequel to Casino Royale and how he gets the whole shaken, not stirred thing. Again, slightly hand-fisted, but a nice little throw to people who, you know, obviously who doesn't know Bond. This isn't like some comic book hero setup, like, oh, he did the <laughs> thing. He he did his power or his suit looks the same. No, this yeah. is, uh, hey, this is how this came about, so. His, his super suit is a tuxedo. Uh, just want to point out, this is not the movie podcast, but the first seven movies, especially the Sean Connery movies, he didn't wear the tuxedo in the opening credit, the, uh, the gunshot camera. He didn't that's wear right. a tuxedo until Roger Moore. And that was the yeah, 1970s right. tuxedo, which is god awful. So. He, also, he also had the hat on in all the Connery ones, right? Uh, well, the hat was for the first two movies, that, and there was not Sean Connery in that. That's it was, right. It was some other guy, I don't remember his name, but it doesn't really matter. Speaking of the vodka martini, uh, have you heard of the drink, the Vesper? Yep. Uh, actually, I think I know it more from the movie, Casino Royale. That super complicated drink is straight out of the book. Nice, nice. That, which, like, word for word, that's exactly how he orders it in the book. <laughs> and that's funny because nobody understood that when the movie came out. And at the time, the, uh, what's the, uh, Lilo Blanc hadn't been made for 30 years. And they just actually only started making it recently. So. <laughs> Nice. So tell me about Casino Royale. This is uh, this is the novel that started it all. It's definitely an interesting read. Um, I think it's worth checking out as like a primer for the Bond books. Like if you're a fan of the movie, you'll kind of notice they ripped a lot of it directly from this book. Basically, a lot of the stuff in the whole casino sequence is, is the book, if that makes sense. Because almost the entire book takes place in Casino Royale. One of the big differences is that there's very little action. It's all subtle interplay between Bond and Lashif. And it, it's kind of riveting. I like it. Like the way it's written, like it really keeps you on edge. Even if you don't fully understand um, Baccarat. Baccarat's the one where you play as the bunk and uh, and then someone else plays the deal. It's basically like a very weird version of Blackjack as far as I understand. Like you hit a certain number and you can't go over, but the other person has to go like the same. It's, you're trying to play against the bank, which has the money, and then play against the player. I, I, I will get into one of my novels that I read that they got super into Mahjong like four pages deep of how Mahjong is played. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't need to know this. They had drawings, they had <laughs> illustrated drawings, how like a Mahjong hand set is set up. 
it was not yeah. unnecessary. So, well, that that kind of goes back to Ian Fleming's style. While he's a really great writer, he does get a little too descriptive sometimes. <laughs> There'll be like five pages about the room, and it, it's kind of like with Tolkien sometimes. <laughs> well, for the literary nerds out there, Tolkien wanted to invent a language. That's where he wrote books. It had nothing to do with writing. So yeah, he goes a little overboard with his description. Even though Spectre is a big part of the early Bond movies, Spectre didn't actually show up until Thunderball. So in a lot of the early books, it's actually Smirsh that's behind everything, which is like a branch of like the Russian. The Russian, yeah, the, the Russian intelligence service. Uh, yes. You actually do see them in From Russia With Love. Uh, Smirsh is in charge yes. of that operation. Uh, Kleb technically works for Spectre, but her day job is Smirsh, which Smirsh was a real thing. And yes. Fleming fought the precursor to that right after World War II, because he was yep. in the OSS uh, and he helped he develop, was. He, he was, yeah, he might've killed a guy, but uh, I mean, he was not a, um, <laughs> he was more of a planner. He was more of a thought guy. So he 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 had the overall, overall view of the plans for the Brits. And then he saw what the counter plans were from, from Smirsh, because they were doing the same type of thing. Obviously we were allies and I'm using finger quotes because it's a podcast, but allies <laughs> for a while. And uh, yeah, and, so that's, he's, Everything Ian Fleming wrote was a product of his time planning the war and being in the war. Uh, and yeah. you and I, again, discussed this earlier, his, his long prose where he goes into food. And I'm going exactly. to skip ahead a little bit. He describes food in the most food porny way. And I, <laughs> I only say that because the authors I'm reading stole the way he writes about food. Mm -hmm. And it is, again, one page of his breakfast and how he planned the breakfast and the amount of coffee this man drank. Oh, wait. Uh, oh my God, it's insane. James Bond does not <laughs> drink tea. He will tell you that more than once in the damn book. But yeah, yeah I kind of I kind of love that. And it's, it's funny that's never ended up in the movies, I don't think. I don't think I've seen Bond on screen drinking coffee. Yet, if you read the books, he's like chugging black Hops coffee constantly. Yeah. yeah, like that, it's like coffee and bacon. <laughs> Imagine him at an IHOP drinking the little carafe directly out of the carafe. Right. <laughs> like this guy is fueled by coffee and sex. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I, I was trying to describe that to my wife. I'm like, hey, so, and the reason I, I got into the food situation is because it ties back into the war. Because <laughs> Britain was facing shortages of everything all the way through yeah. the mid 50s i mean we, the americans were providing them for a lot of supplies and they people were in starvation so i can see ian fleming describing the food as kind of an escape to be like this yes. is right now i want six rashers uh -huh. four eggs scrambled into an omelet and a solid pot of jamaican coffee and that's i would say every book i've read so far has that set up for breakfast in the morning even if he's in a hotel in like <laughs> istanbul he orders yeah. down and gets food service he gets delivery service all the time i, I would imagine istanbul has some pretty good coffee though to be honest yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm just what i'm saying is like everything that ian fleming wrote for the novels mm -hmm. i would say is based on his time in the service so that's why totally. smirch specter was a creation of his novels because he, he can't just have the russians as a bad guy every single time it gets boring and also <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, and for the movies, it could be problematic, I imagine. Like, if you're trying to reach a wide audience, you know. And it ended up being problematic with the uh, the movies because Spectre was taken from him. <laughs> that's so, right, yeah. That's why we that's have two Thunderball thing. movies, yeah. Yeah, and that's why Blofeld didn't show up again until the last movie. Uh, yeah, like which we, 20, we finally got it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were talking about, you know, Ian Fleming working for the real British Secret Service during World War II. 
I think that's where a lot of these descriptions come from. I think it also really adds to the whole spycraft angle. Like everything rings really true. And I think you're right. Like the the food stuff, that's that's sort of the fantasy aspect of it, I guess. You know, exotic locales and uh, bacon. <laughs> so what's the overall plot of the book, Casino Royale? Is it follow the movie to a point? Is he still... I, I, I remember the movie like Forward. back of my hand. So I'm trying to figure out like... If it's a very dry, like, cerebral detective novel. That's kind of how it reads. It's very dry. I know some people have trouble with this one because it seems like not a lot happens, but a lot of it is kind of internal. You know, it's it's Bond thinking through things, kind of considering the situation, looking at, you know, things from different angles and things like that. Basically, it's, it's Bond in the casino and he is on a mission to stop Lashif through gambling, I guess, for some reason. <laughs> He's trying to make sure he loses, which is, you know, in the movie, obviously. But that's the focus of the book. Like in the movie, like you have that whole opening with the plane and everything. None of that's in the book. It's just Bond at the casino. Like you have the torture scene. That's from the book. Uh, the whole thing with Vesper Lynn betraying Bond. That's from the book. I will say, though, Eva Green's version in the movie is a lot better written than the way Ian Fleming writes the character. I have a feeling that he didn't write women well, and I'm just saying that's because this is the 1950s yeah. and he was a British male, so... Yeah, now there's a there's a few examples that'll come up later. There's a few, like, well-written female characters in his works. Vesper Lynn is not one of them. <laughs> that's good to hear. Um, some of my novels have mentioned Vesper as one of his first loves. So they get called back, I would say, she gets called back a lot, and eventually Tracy gets called back a lot. Tracy's Two authors have both specifically called out his past loves. There's, obviously, I didn't read every one of the novels, but some of the authors, but they do have... Oh, Bond was with this girl. Bond loved this girl. I mean, in one of my books, he proposes to a girl. I will say only one of the authors I read writes women well. Like, they, she wasn't just a throw-in. She wasn't just, like, Bond, but a woman. Like, it was, it was a, <laughs> a believable... She had her own life outside of Bond. Yeah, definitely. So what do you got for your first one? Okay, so my first novel was called Win, Lose, or Die. That sounds like a terrible, terrible Bond movie title. Um, <laughs> they did mention the title at some point in the, the plot. It was, this movie was the eighth book by John Gardner. Now, J Gardner was tagged directly after Ian Fleming. He wrote a uh, novel. Oh, so he's the follow-up. He's the follow-up past any of the movie novelizations. He wrote one movie novelization, and I, I want to say it's View to, View to Kill, but I don't actually... I don't remember off the top of my head, but he only wrote one movie novelization. He wrote I'm 14... kind of curious about those novelizations, by the way. <laughs> he wrote 14 novels from 1981 through 1996. So this movie, this book, the one, I mean, I only could find so many books that are from the 80s that are digitized because I read on yeah. a Kindle most of the time. So this one was the eighth book called Win, Lose, or Die. Uh, basically, the plot is, uh, let me read my note from here. Bond sure. is put back in the service in the Navy 12 months in advance to foil a terrorist plot. So they actually sent, I mean, you hear about Bond going on long missions. In fact, I believe in Dr. No, they talk about he was laid up in bed for like six months for a previous mission. Like- That's right. That's, you gotta think, this, the movies we see take place within three to four days, maybe maybe a week at most. So, I mean, the novels I've had, like he was, he was on a mission and they pulled him to put him in the Navy because they found out about the terrorist plot. Now, the terrorists, they did this once in the beginning of the book. They had a night force of parachuters take over a cargo ship in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, they all got repelled, but there was some traffic on the wire and they found out that, oh, they're gonna attack the uh, 
HMS Invincible, which uh, was a ship that was commissioned in the 1980s. It was like one of the brand new Harrier carrier ships. Uh, and they, they were like, they're going to take it over uh, when there's some meeting. Like, this is 12 months out. So they put Bond back into the Navy, and he has to serve his normal Navy hours <laughs> as, as a spy. Like, hey, this is your job now. Uh, you're going back in the Navy. You have to sleep on a ship, be on a ship. Go to train. He keeps. That's uh, he, nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's hard to imagine. Now, every time we've seen him in the movies, it's been Commander Bond. Commander Bond. He gets yep. promoted to captain in this one. Um, oh. Technically, according to the novelist, he never left the navy. He was one of those like a cover type situation. Oh, um, okay. But I always thought he was commander on a ship. Turns out he was a pilot in this in the previous. That's this is the way this is written. He's a pilot. Uh, that kind of makes sense. I mean, he does fly a lot of planes and helicopters uh, and whatnot. And they did say he kept his flying hours when he was active reserve or whatever he's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they put him in. Now remember, this is this this book was from uh, 1986. So he okay. learned to fly a Harrier, a Sea Harrier. <laughs> this is the new technology now. <laughs> wow. Uh, oh no, sorry, 1989. And the other new technology was the Sea Whiz, which we see as the big, you know, ch- machine gun on ships and stuff like that. This is right after the Falklands War; they put it in the service in '82. So, like, this is a brand new ship, according to the Brits. Like, you know, carriers don't really get built every day. Um, but the plot generally is: Bond is sent back into the Navy to foil a plot 12 months in advance. I don't know, like, someone called the villain Blandfield <laughs> because he's a master strategist and he has money and he's an evil villain but it actually turns out the guy's a con man and he's been conning people since oh. he got like he, he started conning old ladies for money and then he started conning businesses for cash and then started doing warlords like he does have contacts in like the service and like in the terrorist spots but he basically just wants to get a big score and escape to a life of happiness so he, everything he does is set up so he can get away now this is the first post Ian Fleming novel I read I didn't read any novels before. I've, I think I've dabbled in some other novels way in the past, but I don't remember any of them. But yeah, yeah it opens at Christmas time that Bond has just finished his final training for the Sea Harrier. And he says he hates Christmas because he has no family. And they even mention Tracy outright. So wow. that's what I was like, oh, well, this book's going to be interesting. Now keep in mind, this is the eighth book from this guy. So like, he's already had some time to get used to the way Bond is. Yeah, uh, totally. In general, Bond goes on holiday to Italy. Uh, yeah, he goes into Bahan Holiday in Italy, and he shacks up with the lady who's running the villa. Turns out, FYI, she's undercover too. Oh, okay. But they leave it very ambiguous whose side she's on undercover, which is really cool. Uh, you don't really get that the behind the scenes in the movie because you don't get you don't get voiceovers from Bond, so you don't really know what he's thinking at the time. Right. Yeah. And that's a th- big thing with the early books too. Yeah. Like, you really get his perspective. So that's Actually, cool to see that that's kind of carried over to the newer books. Yeah. A funny thing is this book was written before the Euro. So every time they explained something in uh, Italian, whatever the hell, Lira or something, I was like, yeah, that real money. Like, I can calculate Euros. I can't calculate old-timey money. Uh, right. I think another, another book I read had the franc. I'm like, I'm, I'm not figuring this out. I don't know. This could be a billion dollars for all I care. So yeah. anyway, uh, Bond is ambushed and the girl is killed by the car bomb. By the way, he falls in love with her. Uh, and yeah, he proposes to her. I don't know. It's a weird situation. Oh, wow. Yeah. she She's an Italian spy, but uh, she might work for the Brits, quote unquote. But anyway, she's killed by a car bomb. Uh, and then Bond is brought into a secret base in Italy, staffed by NATO people. And then, and this is my note, exact note. And eight pages later, I'm vindicated. It turns out those were the real bad guys. So they literally had Bond in their secret base 
they had to give him a medical test, they gave him an interview, all this like that, to make sure, you know, he was debriefed. And they didn't kill him. Like, why? Well, this is, oh my God, like, why wouldn't you just kill him? He's right there. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the biggest part of the, the book, and actually this is very funny, because again, it's very contemporary. Uh, the whole reason that they're going to attack this carrier craft, and they planned it 12 months in advance, which this doesn't seem realistic. The President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, um, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, and Gorbachev came on the boat to have a four-day conference just with those three people and their translators. So it was it was like a very undercover, and they called it like the, the meeting of the stewards because they were the stewards of the world type situation. Um, well, it's kind of like how, was it uh, Stalin, Churchill, and uh, FDR all met oh, yeah. at one time? Yeah, yeah. in, in Ter- Tehran, but this is yeah. Yeah, back when the show was. Um, funny enough, George H.W. Bush uh, walks over and shakes Bond's hand when they get on because Bond is technically in charge of the security for this meeting. That's the whole reason he's there. And as soon as everyone's on the boat, Bond goes into straight detective mode because he has to investigate a murder on board. He has to uh, investigate, like, who is the bad guy? And it's, if this were a real situation, those people would just flown home and nothing yeah. would happen. But yeah, George Bush comes and shakes Bond's hand and he goes, oh, yeah, I was Felix Leiter of Boss. Because don't forget, George H.W. Bush used to be the director of the CIA. So Felix Leiter worked in the CIA and George H.W. Bush was his boss. And he's like, oh, Felix oh. mentioned you a lot. That was, the, that was just a little nice little aside, you know? Oh yeah, that's right. Because George H.W. Bush actually really was the director of the CIA. Wow, that's, that's a nice detail to add in there. That, yeah. That's really clever. <laughs> uh, anyway, it turns out the spy got blown up by a car bomb. Nope, she faked her death and uh, she's on the good guy's side. This is with 20 pages to go. Now this is, I'm gonna say this right now, and this is one of my critiques for all these books. Sure. All these books, the ending peters off. They like, it's it's standard thriller writing. I wish they would have done better. They spend the first, second, and the half of the third act building everything up, everything up. And the last 20 of the pages of the book, they're like, oh yeah, we probably should end this at some point. So instead of like an epic battle- <laughs> it sounds like or a like lot Yeah, there's so much lead up in this book, but they get 20 pages to like kill the bad guy. And that, in fact, one of my books, um, Seafire, the bad guy dies with two in one page. Like they see the bad guy at the very end and they, they yeah. kill. It's, it's, there's no speeches, there's no, it's just, it's dumb. But yeah. Well, um, that, yeah. Yeah. That's, I, it's, I can kind of understand why. I mean, it, it seems that a lot of times action doesn't always translate very well to books. So you kind of have to like build up the tension and you don't want to focus too much on the actual you know, action, you know, like describing the, the choreography fault. and whatnot. <laughs> part of the fault in that, in these novels, um, this is uh, not dime store paperbacks, but they're basically equivalent of like male uh, romance novels. They're only about 200 to 250 pages. So it's not a lot of book. So yeah, that's when you true. when you get to, the, you have to figure out like the third act of a book, honestly, should be about 60 pages and they condense Definitely. it down to 20. And that includes the very ending. Um, but yeah, uh, my uh, but end of the note is, so at the end of the book, they go back to the original Italian villa because James loves her. And I wonder if she's in the next book. Uh, I didn't read the next book. So I read, this is the eighth book. I read the 14th book down the line from John Gardner. So oh, okay. I, never found, I never found out what happened to those girls. <laughs> oh no. Like, did he did he end up getting married to her? Did she die? Like, Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't tell you. But I, when you, after you tell your next book, I at least have a girl I know follows up in a different book later. So there you go. Get, get, get something fun there. <laughs> definitely, definitely.
so the next one I did was the second book, uh, Live and Let Die. Oh, Live and Let Die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did talk about this one a lot on the last episode on the Bond comic. But yeah, just to sum up, I got to say, this was a really hard one to get through, which is unfortunate because if it wasn't for all the, you know, problematic, semi-racist passages, I think it would be a really good adventure story. Uh, you know, like I said in the last episode, if you're if you're looking to read all the Bond books, I recommend skipping this one and instead reading the graphic novel adaptation because that takes all the good elements and actually, you know, makes it readable. You had mentioned in that episode that uh, Mr. Big was a separate character. They didn't merge them together. So is this pretty much like the novel was not one-to-one, but like good enough one-to-one? So the graphic novel is basically a direct adaptation of the book. They just cut out a lot of the problematic material. And what I mean by that is there's whole passages where Ian Fleming will describe a certain culture, but a lot of times when he does that, he talks down about it, and it just, especially in that book, it's a little cringy. It's hard to get yeah. through, you know, from a modern perspective. Now, um, I will point out that- A lot of when characters, I, caricatures, you know, things like that, you know, so. When we watched the movie, the movie was mm-hmm. contemporary to the time, so it was very black exploitation. Yes. So the novel would have been, I guess me, even Fleming, channeling uh who's the mr dr livingston or mr livingston presume you know the people that kind of like colonialist type writing and thinking yes i think yeah i think that comes through in a lot of these books and that's just a product of the time if you know you're able to get past that it is actually a really good book which is which is weird to say (laughs) but the story is very different from the movie uh like you mentioned like in this one mr big is the villain but instead of like a heroin scheme, Bond is sent to investigate his underground criminal organization, which is apparently funded by stolen pirate gold discovered in the Caribbean. Like that's the initial, like that's what starts the mission. That's fun. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think like what yeah. was going on at the time because honestly, I mean, nowadays we hear about pirate gold and we're like, oh, which government's gonna claim it and someone's gonna get 10%. But now back then it was like, you could get away with gold because it was gold standard for everything so yeah (laughs) exactly but yeah um the way mr big was written in the book he seems like he seemed like a really good villain he wasn't just physically imposing but he was also a criminal mastermind and it seemed like he was three steps ahead of bond like throughout the book it he really seemed like an actual threat which um i thought was kind of cool that character didn't come across that way in the movie like at all (laughs) you know Now, there's a question. This is the second book in the series, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's no mention of Spectre. This is literally just a standalone villain. So apparently, Smirsh is funding this guy. At oh, that's right. Or, he, the or they, they, they gave him training or something. It's not steeped in it like From Russia With Love is. Yeah. I only ask because the Caribbean at the time was kind of seen as America's domain. And the only one we had lost was a little bit mm-hmm. of Cuba. Obviously, we didn't have Cuba. They were, uh, they were communists at the time. And there were some leaning towards some of the other islands. We ended up giving uh, the Bahamas a boat, which they still have. It's docked up. So, I mean, they don't have enough money to run the gas in the thing. But I was, I was trying <laughs> to figure out, like, okay, so yeah. what's his what's his backing? Is he really just, like, a villain? Is a good villain? But if they're going to try to smash that smirch angle in there. He, he, at the time, I could see him, the wheels turned in his head. Like, hey, we're going to have an overarching thing. Oh, yeah, totally. There's a mention of Q Branch, or Q. But... You don't see him. It's kind of off screen or off page, I guess. But the only mention of him is that he helped to heal Bond's scar from the first book. 
Ah, like, see, his scar is described in every book I have so far. Like, it's he's a very well, he's tall, a, dark man with a scar on his right cheek. And yes. he, he would be handsome, but it's something, like, off about him. And what, the way you described him in the comics, uh, the way, you know, the, he was supposed to be looked like an actor of some sort. Um, yeah. I always see him in my head as either Sean Connery mixed with Archer or just a straight <laughs> Archer. Because Archer was modeled directly after Sean Con uh, after uh, James Bond's description, and then they found a male model that kind of looked like him. But Archer really? is is just bland. I mean, he's, he's, he's a template for being a spy, and that's what you want with a spy. You don't want someone recognizable. So <laughs> <laughs> Totally. I yeah. do like the, the scar uh, angle. You know, that's described in the first book, of course. Um, but I don't know, I kind of I like you know, I like the idea of Bond having a scar for some reason. <laughs> it's also harder with the older books because the language is always off. Not, it's just the way the things were written back then. It wasn't as clear. It's very uh, precise. And uh, what's the term? Like, he's very academic. So one thing I totally forgot to mention is that Felix is a big part of this one. Uh, because a good chunk of the movie actually takes place in America. He starts out in Harlem, but he eventually makes his way down the East Coast. And he ends up in Jacksonville at one point. <laughs> like, no uh, joke. They're at a diner in Jacksonville. And at one point, Bond is musing about how, like, the entire state of Florida is a retirement home. <laughs> like, that's funny, because back this would have been 19, what, 54, 2, somewhere around there? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, I mean, we weren't even a consolidated government. Uh, just a FYI, both Eric and I are based out of Northeast Florida. And yeah. <laughs> Duval County uh, is one Duval. large county. <laughs> it's just it's it's habit at this point you're fine but the city is the size of the county just because of our way of our politics work uh we are the largest city in the continental u.s the next largest american city actually the largest american city is Juneau, alaska so yeah we're, we're just a very large city and at the time if bomb was here and at a diner in, in jacksonville i yeah. mean there was four other cities in the area and they were all separate and there's yeah i can just imagine that <laughs> totally um, and then another weird thing that happens in this book is that Felix gets attacked by sharks. He loses oh, a so limb. This is the book that happens. Okay, we don't yeah, get that in the, the movies. It's the second book. It's wow. the second book in the series. And it's like, wait, they just killed Felix? And apparently Ian Fleming's intention was to kill Felix in this book. But I, I guess a lot of American readers really latched onto that character. So he decided to bring him back. Now, on your comics podcast, you mentioned Felix having the prosthetic leg and arm. And I will yes. tell you right now, in my books, every time Felix is shown, except for one exception, he does have prosthetic leg and arm, including one in the 60s. I think it takes place in 69. Oh, um, wow. He has a, a really nice one from the CIA. Like, it is, it is a nice one. So, yeah, <laughs> Felix is in uh, several of my books. Not every book, but several of my books. And... He, he's there, and they, they keep the continuity from that. I thought it, because it was in, in the movies, it's uh, License to Kill, that he gets mm -hmm. his leg cut off and all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm surprised. Second book in. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. That was, like, straight-up shocking. <laughs> I mean, as big of a character as he is and everything, you know, and that's not how you see him in the movies, you know? Um, yeah. Another thing I really liked about this one is that it's relatively low stakes. Like, it ends up becoming this very personal survival story for Bond. Like, he's basically trying to get revenge for what happened to, to his friend, to Felix, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's trying to save Solitaire from Mr. Big. Um, and then at the end, he's just, he's literally fighting for their survival, you know? Um, we, we also get to see, like I mentioned, a less refined, less confident Bond. 
he shows vulnerability and fear. Uh, at one point, there's a scene where he's in an airplane and he's like considering like what could go wrong. And he's like trying not to panic. <laughs> like they're hitting some turbulence and everyone in the plane's freaking out and he's just ca calmly talking himself through it. So you don't really see that version of Bond in the movies at all. Um, and I thought the ending of the book was spectacular. Uh, you know, Mr. Big, he ties Bond in solitaire behind a boat to drag them through a coral reef in shark infested waters. I think that's like one of the best death traps in the entire Bond series. And what's funny is I recently was watching For Your Eyes Only. I was going to say, that was at the used, end of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they kind of used that sequence. I guess they pulled it from this book. But uh, the way it's described in the book is really cool because so there's a bomb planted on the boat. Bond is trying to uh, kind of count down the seconds, trying to figure out when this bomb's going to go off. And if they get pulled through the water like too early, they'll drown or die before the bomb goes off. And if they're too late, like it's a whole thing. He's trying to calculate it, you know? And he's trying to like buy them time for that bomb to go off at just the right time, you know? Because if they're, if they're not in the water when it goes off, they'll be too close to the boat and they'll blow up, you know? So it's it's really kind of an interesting scene and um the way he describes he kind of goes through and describes like what would happen like getting like their skin flayed off by the coral reef it's like a really intense scene and it like it almost entirely takes place in his head <laughs> huh. so i, I mean it's kind of cool what did that novel end kind of okay so obviously the movie it ended with mr big turning into a balloon um <laughs> but like what was the outcome of the end of the novel like so um the boat blows up but mr big gets off of it somehow and he gets eaten by sharks <laughs> like just just comeuppance yeah <laughs> i didn't really like solitaire in the book i kind of prefer the version in the movie it so it's not rosie carver <laughs> it's not rosie carver rosie carver is not in the book at all Oh, look at that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's very different from the movie. Like, I could go all day about the differences. It's it's almost a whole different story with just a few things that seem similar, you know? No, that just it's interesting that your next book actually does change, uh, I would say, the tone, because Casino Royale was a cerebral thriller, and it sounded like uh, Live and Let Die was kind of like, we're going to make him an action hero. So I'm trying to think yeah, of the novel. it was I'm way to think more like of an adventure story. Yeah. There wasn't yeah. a lot of spy elements in this one. It wasn't as overt as the first one, you know? There was a lot of spy in my next novel. So I read Seafire, which is John Garner's 14th book. Now remember, he wrote 14 novels. This is the last of his novels. Well, no, I think he had two more after this one because he mentioned a girl, the, the girl I'm about to describe. So the book opens, Bond's on a 14-day yeah. expensive cruise with a woman named Flicka uh -huh. that he's been living with. So I'm like, wait, who, who, who is this Bond? Uh, it, they, 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 apparently she was not in any of the previous novels. It's the first one they come into. So, oh, really? Yeah, so like she, Flicka, she's, a, she's an ex, a Swiss intelligence agent. Apparently she burned a bunch of bridges and now she works for MI6. The oh, okay. 00 section of the government is no longer. Uh, there's no more license to kill. There's actually overseen by a bunch of bureaucrats, and Bond is now in charge of this section. So M's still there, but he's retired, quote unquote. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, but there's like um like a committee of people that Bond's on. There's this book, for being 250 odd pages, there are 
four times they go to meetings and he describes every <laughs> one of like the council members and the, the people in this book but yeah um let me wow. just scroll through my notes here because I, You're I actually so I this was, oh yeah this was this was this, another book by gardner you said this is another book by john gardner um what year did this one come out it was early 90s. I don't have it written down right in front of me, but um, oh, you're good. his last book was from 1996. I want to say this book was 92, 93. This is just after the reunification of Germany. And the reason oh. I point that out is because this book partially takes place in Germany. Um, the bad guy is a rich, uh, tell me this is not a villain name, Max yeah. Karn. So <laughs> he's a self-made yeah. millionaire slash rich asshole. Um, that sounds like a comic book villain name. Like, that's not uh, even well thought out. <laughs> no, uh, and actually, I would say even with the next novelist, Raymond Benson, most of the bad guys going forward, because there's no state actors anymore, they're all yeah. just rich assholes who think that they know better than the world. So that's that's basically what it goes to. Um, <laughs> it, the bad guy turns out he's, he's a rich person. He knows a bunch of random stuff. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, I can tell you what he owns. It doesn't matter. But he turns <laughs> he's also an arms smuggler. Uh, okay. So the the guy fakes his death and escapes to Spain. Um, Bond eventually tracks down the, them. There's a motorcycle chase. Oh, you didn't mention before, but I found out after sure. research, the PPK from the movie was actually never used in any of the books until the later novels. Bond used so, a yeah. Browning handgun, and it's described more than once. Uh, didn't he have a Beretta at one point? I want to say a Beretta comes up in the books that I. In Doctor No, he had a Beretta in the movie. But I read that he had he was issued a Browning and he used it from the war and he liked that a lot. Uh, he had a Beretta, but they kept a gentleman that was not powerful enough because it was only nine millimeter. But yeah, in uh, Doctor No, uh, Major Boothrode, before he was named Q, comes in and makes him switch out the guns. In fact, M's like leave leave your Beretta. You're not allowed to have it anymore. In this novel series by John Gardner, apparently Major yeah. Boothrode had retired years ago. I didn't read any of those books, but uh, there's a girl in charge of Q Branch named Ann Riley, and she's in the like six or seven books. And she's known as Cute. Q, Q, Q C U T E, Cute. Uh, that's what Bond <laughs> calls her. Uh, and she hasn't killed him yet, but uh, <laughs> um, oh, here you go. The book was written in 94. Okay. Uh, and there was a lot of right-wing German stuff going down on because don't forget, East and West Germany had merged just two years before. So it's, it was a whole lot of uh, pent-up aggression going on. Um, yeah. Now, this novel, Bond, since he's living with this girl and she works with him, they they go back to the house. Like, every time he goes on a mission, he comes back home with Flicka. And there's a whole, like, domestic situation going on. And then, like, she hates that he has to go on missions, but she understands because she's also an agent. They go really into, like, Bond's relationship with women. Uh, I mean, they mention Tracy, Vesper, Honey Rider, Domino, and Kissy Suzuki. Oh, wow. so, I mean, yeah, and this is yeah. from the John Gardner novel. So I mean, Kissy Suzuki. I don't know if you, if she's That's in the canon. Not. Yeah, yeah, no, she's in, she's in. You only live twice in the book. Okay, so I, I yeah, I didn't know that she was in the book for that one. Um, yep. It's funny because since he's in charge of the branch, he has to make his own travel arrangements. So they go into detail about him calling around to like British Air. I need a flight. No, the next one's not out till nine thirty the next morning. It's like the, the details they go into. Why? This is why this novel ends with one page death of the villain and there's still 10 pages left in the book. I'm like, what, what is going on here? Does it end on a boat with a woman? It does. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so they kept that trope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's not the way you think it is. Um, technically, oh, I think I gotcha. they, they end uh, on 
an island that they end up going on a boat for. But uh, the bad guy thinks he's going to become the next Hitler. He's very right wing. He used to be German aristocracy. He's forgettable. He's a forgettable villain. But he does have a large Nazi following. And Bond has to go to uh, Germany, some tiny little town in Germany, and break into a lawyer's office. So there's a lot of uh, of breaking and entering in this book. And it goes into super detail about him breaking and entering and all this stuff, but yeah. it's it's forgettable. Again, I actually had, I had to look at my notes to remember that whole Germany situation. Um, the guy has a plan to start a huge oil spill and tanker explosion in Puerto Rico. Uh, so Bond has to fly to Puerto Rico with Flicka to help him um, because the committee that Bond is on, doesn't want to take direct action. They have to call the CIA because it's in Puerto Rico. And so Bond's like, I'm going on vacation. Actually, Bill Tanner, which I don't know he's inscribed in your books, but Bill Tanner is M's right-hand man. Uh, and since M has retired yeah. in this book, Bill Tanner is now in charge of something. I mean, it doesn't, the novel is not written well for that. But Bill Tanner's like, Bond, why don't you go on vacation? Again, air quotes. Yeah. And so Bond flies to Puerto Rico through Atlanta, Mm-hmm. But in Atlanta, Felix shows up. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> nice. so they're like, hey, uh, by the way, Felix is listening, is missing an arm and a leg. They're like, hey, I'll help you out. Uh, the villains plans to stage a huge oil tanker spill and fire in old San Juan. They have a special, oh yeah, he uh, he has an old World War II sub that he bought. He was going to put it in the museum, but he's actually oh. using it to start a war. Um, uh, but they have a special tanker that actually stops the oil slick. But he's going to come out as a hero by stopping the oil. It's like, hey, I've been working on this in my spare time. Uh, and he's going to step up to be the rightful leader of Germany and the neo-Nazis. He's like, look, I'm a great guy. I should be in charge of stuff. And Wait, then because he... he stopped pollution? Yeah, like... That's, you know, yeah, wow, I, that's I, interesting. I, he's, well, they want, he wants to come out as a hero and people are going like, to yeah. love and... Rev- and so he's like, hey, listen, I used to be German aristocracy before the war and... Uh, yeah, you should make me a leader again. And then, you know, he steps up. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm Hitler. So there you go. Um, The funny thing, again, the sense of books I've seen so far are very, they show a lot of time. Like, these missions take weeks to do. It's not like a a one, two-day thing. Bond actually gets trapped. He sneaks onto the old World War II submarine and gets trapped for, like, 12 hours on the thing. Like wow, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he that, like six lo- chapters. <laughs> yeah, well, he he sets bombs in the thing to to sabotage it, and he sets the oh, bombs to go. He knows exactly when the tanker's going to blow up, so he sets the um the bomb on the sub to go off like five minutes before, and then he gets stuck on there because they decided to like take the boat out and like get going because the U.S. Navy actually does patrol the Caribbean a lot, so they're like, hey, yeah. if we go underwater now, they won't catch us going in and out of where we're going from. And so he's stuck on there. He finally has to blow like an escape hatch just to escape. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, but then like that whole plot ends and he gets a call. Like there's these SAS guys show up mm-hmm. and they have, he has a powered glider. They shoot the villain in the chest with a flare, sets him on fire and he dies. And then he has to go to another house to save Flicka. And then they, they leave. Like <laughs> I told you like the really cool build up him escaping on a sub. And then the last 10 pages are that, dumb thing like power gliders and flare guns it's uh, huh. so i i will say gardner probably wrote bond a good mix of ian fleming but he wrote him he wrote like uh just a thriller novelist from the 80s they're not good 
they're not good enough. <laughs> I got you. So this last one, Seafire, uh, you said? Seafire, yep. It sounds like you kind of took that trend of the Bond movies kind of playing up the current events of the time a little bit. Yeah, like the, I mean, especially with the, and like the oil tanker and yeah, the Nazi thing. So it's, I could see it working. It just, again, the novel, for 250 pages, the novel doesn't end well. I think if it went on longer, he could have fleshed out the ending for a full third act. I got you. So what it you got sounds, uh I was just going to say real quick, it sounds like Gardner was really leaning into the naval aspect of Bond. Yeah, he, he pushed that a lot, that Bond's Navy background, Navy training, Navy thought. Um, he did do the tropes of the food, but not as much as the next authors I've read. read. Um, okay. He only kind of threw it in there. The Honestly, between carte blanche and solo and the novel forever in a day those novels are food porn <laughs> <laughs> uh so the next one i have is moonraker which is actually the third book in the series i was kind of surprised this was so early on because you think with the movies it's like when they get to moonraker it's like okay they've officially run out of ideas <laughs> and the fact that this takes place so early on was a little bit like I was like okay I, I guess I guess this is the next one and I was expecting to not like this book well just but, a point don't forget the movie Moonraker only got pushed forward it was supposed to be after for your eyes only yeah. but the movie Moonraker only got pushed forward because uh, Star Wars did Star so Wars. well at the box office they're like oh god we need a Star Wars we need a we need this movie now that goes in space please give us a movie oh my god you wrote a book about going to space let's do this <laughs> Uh, so that's, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, this book is nothing like the movie. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, Bond does not go to space. Uh, and there's no Jaws, but there is a cool car chase. <laughs> uh, so I really like this book. I thought this is the best one of, out of all the ones I read. Wow. Um, it was really entertaining, which was surprising because like, I mean, the movie's fun and cheesy, but it's not a good movie. It's not a good Bond movie. Um, but yeah, this is a really entertaining read. It barely feels like a Bond story at times. Um, it kind of reads like the, like a day in the life, you know, like a day of the life, sorry, a day in the life of Bond or a week in the life, I should say. Uh, Cause it's like split up. It's like the first part of the book's Monday, second part of the book's Tuesday. And it kind of goes through the whole week. Um, and it just follows Bond like throughout all that. Uh, the Bond woman in the book is Gala Brand, who's never shown up in the movies. She's actually one of the best written female characters in the series that I've read so far. Uh, she's not really a damsel in distress. She's confident and capable. She's extremely smart. Uh, she actually helps to thwart the villain's plot. She pretty much saves the day and Bond's just kind of there to support her. Uh, and she also doesn't fall head over heels over Bond. And in fact, the book ends with uh, Bond with her rejecting Bond. Like she basically breaks his heart because she's that. got like this guy on the side and uh, she's like, yeah, I just want to be friends. <laughs> kind of, you know, like she friend zones Bond and it's like, oh, poor little fella. <laughs> uh, and so you're, was, you're seeing his point of view too, right? So you actually, yeah. he's describing what he's going through. Like, I didn't think she would break up with me type thing. So <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I'm sorry, every, was, every time I talk about Bond, it's Connery in my head, so. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Yeah, so it's just like a lot of aspects of this book really surprised me, you know, like kind of did the unexpected thing. 
And that could be because the formula wasn't really set at this point. Like a lot of the later Fleming novels, from what I understand, kind of fit into the Bond formula a little bit better. But this uh, kind of went a different direction, which I thought was cool. I think one of my favorite parts in the book is Bond having a meeting with M for lunch and he orders extra drinks to get drunk on purpose in order to get into character for his mission. And then you later have him regretting it in the next chapter. <laughs> Bond doesn't so, get hangovers. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is uh, Thunderball actually opens with Bond having a hangover. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so another interesting thing is that this whole book takes place in England, which is pretty rare for a Bond story because usually he's globetrotting. But like pretty much, if I'm not mistaken, the whole thing takes place in England. Now, which... I have a question about that. Um, mm -hmm. Does he have his double O powers in there? Because honestly, from what we know of Bond, he's a division of MI6. And MI6 is external security. They're like the CIA of England. So uh, my book that I read, Carte Blanche, he has carte blanche when he's overseas, but when he's on English territory, MI5 has the uh, the power and he's not allowed to carry a gun, he's not allowed to shoot. So I'm, I'm that's pretty that's funny true. that, yeah, that Ian Fleming's like, forget the rules, whatever. He's allowed to do what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned that because, um, so it starts out like Bond's kind of like having a boring day at the office. Like he's just going through office work, like looking up like files and stuff about other missions and things. And he's like, <laughs> man, I wish episode. I was. Yeah, he's like, man, I wish I was in the Caribbean right now. <laughs> so he basically stumbles into the villain's plot by accident. The villain is still Hugo Drax, but he's a totally different character. His plot involves a rocket. M pulls him into his office and he calls him James and it's and it kind of like notes that like, oh, this is kind of like something personal, like this is off the record, you know, um, and M wants him to look into this Hugo Drax guy uh, who they point out is like a national hero, um, but he suspects something. He's, he suspects he's up to something because he found him. He thinks he's cheating at cards because Drax just happens to be at the club that M goes to, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, so the whole thing starts out that Bond's not on a mission. He's doing a favor for M. He's looking into this guy and he's trying to catch him cheating at cards. So yeah, like I mentioned, Drax, he's a national hero because of his work on this Moonraker rocket for England. But it's revealed later on that he's secretly a Nazi soldier from World War II who went undercover and changed his identity after being injured in a bombing which is like like a little unexpected because <laughs> you don't really you know you don't really think of bond like fighting nazis a whole lot and i was like oh that's a pleasant surprise no that's pretty I, funny because that's exactly what just happened in seafire so yeah <laughs> garner's like whatever i'll go back to the old faithful yeah and it you know i mentioned this on the last one also but like it's it's kind of funny that bond doesn't fight nazis enough you know like considering ian fleming you know was in World War II, like actually fighting real literal Nazis, you would think they would show up more often in books. <laughs> uh, Timing, yeah. I don't think Nazis worked for novels because people wanted, didn't want to hear about Nazis. And that's why yeah. hence you get Sm Smirsch and then eventually Spectre. They want some sort of secret underground cobble because uh, again, if you actually put like the word Nazi on there, of course the Nazis are bad. Like with at least with the, yeah. a, a front bad guy, like you can get away with it. Like if you had a Nazi, people are gonna kill the Nazi. Like Nazi can't get away with stuff for a while. Totally. But yeah, I guess it was maybe too fresh. So maybe that's why it didn't come up as often. Also, um, these were written in the 50s. He probably didn't want to think about Nazis a lot. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, so like from a historical perspective, I, th- I do think it's pretty interesting um, because the plot involves a rocket and an evil German scientist. And it, the whole thing feels like this metaphor for the V2 bombings of London that were like literally just 10 years earlier. It's like a really thinly veiled like metaphor. The villain spots basically to use this rocket test to nuke downtown London in revenge for Germany losing the war or something. Uh, what's crazy though is that Bond isn't able to stop the rocket launch. He doesn't stop it, but Gallibrand was able to alter the coordinates so that the missile hit Drax's submarine as he was trying to escape. Man, all the movie people just steal exactly <laughs> from the novels. Yeah. We, we just watched A Spy Who Loved Me, and that's what they do. They adjust the trajectory. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's funny that they stole that for that movie, but then didn't use that plot at all in Moonraker. But I guess that makes sense because Moonraker was right after The Spy Who Loved Me. But what's funny is The Spy Who Loved Me, the book, has nothing to do with the movie. Like, there's no same characters or anything. I mean, I'm getting off track here, but... (laughs) Well, so the Moonraker program, instead of being a a spacecraft, is just the the missile, the Moonraker missile. (laughs) Yeah, it's a rocket, basically. They're trying to, like, England's trying to develop uh, ICBM. So... Very fitting for the time. Because yeah, yeah we, we were only giving them some of our information, and they wanted their own in-house program. Which actually, don't forget, uh, sorry, South Africa was working on their own program at the time too. So all those Commonwealth countries were doing that. So yeah, this one ends on a real like down note. It's kind of dark because this this nuke it still goes off. It doesn't go off in the city, but it goes off in the ocean off the coast. And it talks about like all the fallout and like there was a whole ship of naval officers that are killed, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it talks about how like, how, like MI6 has to cover it up uh, they, or maybe it's MI5. You know, one of the branches has to cover it up. They make it look like like the rocket had an accident. And they talk about how Drax is basically memorialized. He's still seen as a national hero because they can't go into the fact that like their security was completely. <laughs> yeah, they can't show that they're incompetent enough to let a order of the British knight be a super bad guy. Exactly. So I really loved that aspect of the book. I thought this version of Drax is a really cool character. And it's really surprising that they haven't revisited this book as far as, you know, adapting for the movies, you know. The novel carte blanche, the bad guy in that one, uh, was well known for his charities and giving back and just being like a good person that they knighted him to. And yeah. so they had they had to similarly write him off as the head of the country being like, Yes, he died in a bad situation from some bad people, even though he was the bad guy. The next book I did read was Zero Minus Ten. And this is the next official author, Raymond Benson. Uh, Raymond Benson wrote six books and a bunch of short stories. In fact, his first book was a short story. I I couldn't find a copy of that one. But this is the first official book. He, again, I explained earlier, he was given ability to take from any part of Bond he wanted, if he wanted to continue the John Gardner style of Bond, or if he wanted to continue from Ian Fleming, or write his own series. Where do you want to start from? So he took a little from everything. Um, yeah, I will say That's this cool. book. This book's plot is actually really cool. It's the conflict between China and Britain to the turnover of Hong Kong. This book was written in 1997, right before the turnover. Like oh, we're wow. talking about, yeah, it was, that happened it was in finished what, and released. Yeah, it was finished and released right before that. Like it was. It was in fact, the book opens with a disclaimer that the bank he describes doesn't have that crappy of a security system. Oh. <laughs> 
And at the time of the writing, the actual turnover details for Hong Kong had not been worked out. The book was published in 1997, just before the turnover. Um, to start off, just before this book, M retired, and the new M is there. The new M hmm. being the M that we know from Goldeneye, Judy Dench. So that's, wow. that's he actually cool. wrote the novelization for Goldeneye. And oh, okay. so he continued on, okay, this is my M. This is what I'm going to do. This M's going forward. Um, just a side note, I was like, I, this is my notes. Definitely no Fricka, Flicka from the last book, but I believe that was almost five books ago. Hopefully Flicka turned out okay, and I had to go look it out. She, <laughs> she might have died in the last book written by Gardner, but it was left open to interpretation, so. Um, oh, no. <laughs> this is the first book I read that actually has a cold open, uh, mm. which, again, taken from the movies, we get that as cold open. We, we understand. It's like, hey, or here's a little side story, or here's like an intro to what's going to happen. This is just nothing to do with the novel itself. It's just Bond's training. Uh, That's awesome. Apparently, apparently there's a double O program and a single O program. And Bond is in charge of the double O program. In fact, he's training two single O's. Uh, so he's 007, there was like an O5 and an O3. Mm, okay. Um, it's super meta though. Bond actually buys a property in Jamaica that was described as where a well-known British journalist and author had died. Hits. <laughs> I mean, Goldeneye was, you know, what's his name's property? That was Ian Fleming's property. Yeah. Uh, and now this is the only novel I wrote, read that mentions Jamaica as being a place of rest and recuperation for Bond, but he does mm. call back like, oh, I wish I were in Jamaica or I wish I did this. Um, yeah, so that's, it's just funny. Uh, the yeah, plot is a family who had owned property in China from the heroin wars, the first heroin wars, the opium wars. Yeah, opium oh, wars. yeah. So a family had owned property in the first opium wars, but a Chinese triad leader had given that family money to to run the company. And they wrote in a, if you ever leave Hong Kong, the triad, get your business. No big deal. Why Why would this company come? It was basically like they were friends back in the 1890s. And they're like, you know, I'm going to make you, to save face, uh, I have to give you something in return for this money. Uh, how about, you know, if I leave Hong Kong, give you the money. And everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. No one's ever going to leave Hong Kong. And then guess what? The Chinese are about to take over Hong Kong. So... <laughs> Good night is mentioned in this novel as a previous uh, assistant to Bond, so I thought that was pretty funny. Oh yeah! Uh, and also, James is specifically called out as being half Scott, half Swiss. So I know that was mentioned before in one of, one, one of your novels. How did I mention that? Because uh, during my research, I found out that yeah, this is canon that he was half Swiss because uh, his mother was Swiss, and she was a yeah. photographer or journalist or something like that. They died in a climbing accidents. Yeah. I'm not 100% positive which book that came up in, but I think it was one of the later ones after Sean Connery was cast. I think that was like one of those retcon things they did to make him yeah. have some Scottish ancestry. Yeah, and uh, a couple of my books have pointed that out uh, about the parents as well. Um, I, I keep going to carte blanche, and the reason I keep going to carte blanche, it's a great novel. Uh, yeah. But they kind of reset Bond, but they keep a lot of the major plot points in, in effect. So that's why I remember it as well, because they made it a point to keep those. But this is the first Bond book I read that he has real gadgets. Uh, he has a pair of shoes with survival equipment in one heel, like a first aid kit, tourniquet, aspirin, painkiller, stuff like that, and a dagger and microfilm reader in the other, plus wire cutters. Now, usually when you see him use like given a gadget he uses it he didn't use the microfilm reader that's the only thing he didn't use in this whole book no. <laughs> so, <laughs> um nice but uh so he has to fly to hong kong for some sort of oh yeah a nuke goes off in australia 
nine days before the transfer to China. Oh, uh, wow. But everyone assumes that the nuke has nothing to do with some Chinese stuff. It just some some crap that happened. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, it didn't. It has to do with the book. Um, <laughs> Bond gets to Hong Kong, immediately orders a drink, like, like right away. So I'm like, this is a Bond that I love already because this is exactly like movie Bond. Yeah. Um, they have, I guess the equivalent of who was Bond's contact in China on, oh no, in Japan. Basically that guy is the oh, contact. Tim, uh, Tanaka, Tim Tiger Tanaka. Tanaka. Yeah. So yeah, they have a, a Hong Kong branch leader helps him out. This is where they go into food porn because they go to a <laughs> fancy hotel and they eat something called beggar's chicken. Now I have to describe beggar's chicken to you because they took two pages to describe it. And this is why it goes kind of against what Bond would do. Beggar's chicken is a whole chicken stuffed with herbs, spices, flavors, wrapped in lotus leaves, covered in clay, and baked for hours until the clay, the clay actually hardens. It becomes like actual clay, like a pot. Then they bring the whole thing out to the diners, and the diners are given mallets to crack open the chicken while like the entire wait staff stand around like oh good for you you cut open the uh, chicken and then a waiter takes all the chicken out from underneath the clay and the lotus leaves and prepares it table side for the diners debones it plates it puts it with some rice if bond was a secret agent he wouldn't want all the wait staff to be standing in front of his table yeah <laughs> um uh, anyway the, the assumed bad guy is the leader of that corporation that I was talking about earlier that has been in the family since the first Opium Wars. And for some reason, the entire board of directors is murdered by an albino, like Chinese wrestler. Uh, it turns out there's a triplets that are albino Chinese people, but it's, oh. uh, they actually have henchmen. They have actual henchmen described. That's like, kind of cool. This yeah. is almost like a novel because there are so many tropes that are given. Like here's a good henchman that's memorable mm -hmm. And every time you see him written, you're like, oh, something bad's going to happen. <laughs> um, so they go to uh, Macau. They take a boat to Macau and they go gamble with this uh, leader of this company who basically just lost his whole board of directors. And he's, he's a drinker. He's a heavy, heavy drinker. But it turns out he also used to be a stage magician. This is where the author describes two pages worth or three pages worth of how to play Mahjong. To bet, not like a mahjong like you play on Microsoft Solitaire, and you're like picking up the little <laughs> chips. Oh, I got a pair. No, like this is how you like people play for points. It's kind of like a spade type situation. It yeah, is. It's an actual thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> they had drawings of the mahjong chips and how they play. I, was, I, I glazed them. My eyes glazed over twice. <laughs> they yeah. also go into detail about smoking habits, where he gets his custom cigarettes made. He apparently used to smoke sixty to seventy cigarettes a day. He smokes so many cigarettes. He smokes actually a mentioned ton of cigarettes in the first book. They mentioned he slowed down during the Thunderball case, and now he's at five to six a day in his older age. So I got to bring I, this up before I forget. In yeah. Thunderball, at least as far as I've gotten, there was a scene where he was talking about, um, like, giving someone advice about quitting smoking. And he says, I would know I've done it several times now or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I thought that was kind of clever. Sorry. Yeah. So, no, it's... It, it, I'm assuming he's about 40 in this book, or a little bit above 40, just because they do show a lot of his past, and that's why I assume that he's written him. Um, anyway, the guy, the bad guy, uh, cheats. It's sort of like a moving timeline, kind of like the Marvel comics. You know, like Peter Parker was a teenager in the 60s, but he's only 30 now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say uh, Daniel Craig is probably about 38, and they kind of show him at that, like in the in the movies. So. Yeah, well, that's a, how he starts, right? Uh, yeah, he starts about 35 with his first kill. 
So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the guy cheats at, at the Bajong because he's an ex-stage magician, but he took over the family business. It, it, it goes into, actually, this villain's very well thought out. The Bottoms Up Club is mentioned because it is in Kowloon in Hong Kong. Okay. So if you don't remember, the Bottoms Up Club yeah. is the uh, stripper bar that is based from uh, Man with the Golden Gun. It's a oh, real club. Gun. It really exists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, Bon ends up breaking into, not breaking into, he, he, he's posing as a journalist overseeing the whole uh, Hong Kong situation. Ends up meeting with a triad leader. The triad leader uh, tries to have Bon killed. Um, Bon meets with a stripper there at that place. That's how you get a lot of information. He helps her escape. Um, but then Bon goes on a mission and the girl is kidnapped. Uh, one of the guys from the Chinese branch of the MI6 thing is killed. And uh, Bon eventually tracks down where the girl is. The trial leader says, I'll make you an offer. You have to go get this document that says, I get the company if the people leave. Apparently this document was written up in the 1800s and a Chinese general who has all these tanks and everything lined up right outside of Hong Kong waiting for the turnover because they think he's going to pour into the street and kill these, you know, kill the Hong Kongers. Now, meanwhile, in real day, present day right now, the Hong Kong people have almost lost all their uh, agency. But this is this, this is a real thought that they had back in the 1997 when the switcher was going to happen. Like, what's going to happen with the one country, two systems thing? So, you know? Yeah. yeah so it's, it's very, te- this is very prudent that I, I listen to this right now or I, watch, I read this right now. Yeah, um, Anyway, so Bond actually has to go to China, posing as a different guy. Uh, steals the document, kills a bunch of Chinese people. The One of the Chinese agents he was working with ends up getting killed right in front of Bond, so he's pissed. And it goes on a like a blood rage. He kills everybody. Like, it's it's bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it, there's, there's no survivor. He, yeah, he, he just kills people for the hell of it. Like, he, he got caned and whipped. Like, um, do you remember the opening of, I think it was Die Another Day, when he's getting tortured by the North Koreans? It's yeah. that kind of it's that kind of setup for like a couple pages, and then nice. he just goes ape and kills everybody. Um, <laughs> anyway, he finds out that the Australia bombing might have something to do with the uh, company that he's investigating. He goes there with the girl because he, he rescues her after the uh, triad guys like you did me so well. You got me this document. Thank you so much. What can I do? Amon's like I need to get to Australia. M won't let me go. Remember, this is uh, Judy Dencham. And she, yeah. already hate, she already hated Bond in Goldeneye because she thought he was a male chauvinist holdover from the previous era. So mm-hmm. she refuses it's to give fossil. him. Yeah, she refuses <laughs> to give him any kind of uh, credit to go to Australia. So he uses the triad leader to fly to Australia under a different cover, gets a new passport, goes to the girl. They, there's a three pages of them driving across their Australian outback to this gold mine. Uh, surprise! The CEO is actually the bad guy. The gold mine actually had natural uranium in it, and the bad guy was building uranium bombs because he hated China, he hated mm-hmm. Hong Kong, because he felt his family and the triads had basically set this path on order to make life not good for everybody. He's like, this all needs to end, and I'm just going to destroy Hong Kong, and nobody can fight over anything. So, wow. yeah. So, uh, the guy actually goes on a huge rant about everything and then doesn't kill Bond when he has a gun against his head. He's like, get That's rid of nuts. him. <laughs> it's very meta. It's super meta. And he That's basically, great. he puts him on an airplane and they're going to throw Bond out of a plane. Uh, this is like live and let die all over again. They're going to throw him out of a plane yeah. over the outback. 
Bond ends up crashing the plane with everybody on board and survives. Uh, and he's, he in the, he's in the outback with two days to go before like the turnover. And he eventually gets back home and he makes a phone call and like M's like, what the hell are you doing in <laughs> Australia? I told you not to go. Uh, we'll talk about this when you get back, but you still have to get to uh, Hong Kong. Uh, there was a Chekhov's gun. There's 50 minutes left to, to like before the turnover, before the bad guy's gonna blow up this nuke in the middle of Hong Kong Harbor. They have a Chekhov's gun that they mentioned way in the beginning of the book about this like tiny little Chinese junk looking thing. And it's been everywhere. And everywhere Bond has gone, he's like, I've seen this junk, I've seen this junk, I've seen this. They, they cart this thing all the way down to Australia to load a bomb up on it. Uh, anyway, the trial leader, Bond, the CEO, the girl, all basically get into a huge fight on a tanker. And Bond stops the bomb with like a minute left. Uh, and then, that sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, and then, so <laughs> M originally hated that the Bond like hooked up with the triads and found this like stripper girl. But after this all goes down, she basically is like allowed to have citizenship anywhere in England, Canada, the U.S. So it's like, oh, oh okay. good for her. But like Bond, obviously Bond slept with her, but it wasn't like a <laughs> obviously. It wasn't like a, he's he was in love because the last two books I read that he was in love with these people. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad that he's just like good, good for you. You get your own thing going on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I do want to point out. I don't think Bond has ever gone to Australia in the movies. No, no, I don't think I he think has. That's kind of weird. Like, especially for a Commonwealth country. Although, keep in mind, though, it's a Commonwealth country back then. Now they have their own intelligence service, and it's kind of like when Bond shows up to the U.S., the CIA has to get involved. I can only Mm -hmm. imagine whatever the equivalent is down in Australia is like. Yeah, you can't work on our territory, dude. Like, maybe go to like (laughs) the Philippines or something because we don't need you. So yeah, I guess I'll jump into the short stories. Um, nice. I'll kind of go over these briefly because there's a lot of them, <laughs> but um, I thought most of them, most of these were pretty good. Uh, a couple were pretty forgetful, but I really enjoyed From a View to a Kill. It's called From a View to a Kill, not A View to a Kill. <laughs> uh, the Living Daylights and For Your Eyes Only. I thought Quantum of Souls was pretty meh. Uh, it's not really a Bond story. Bond listening to another guy talk about a woman who got divorced to an abusive husband like it's not a bond story huh. like like you are bond in the story listening to someone else but it was like it was weird it was like this what am i listening to this is not the same <laughs> you know i don't know it was weird octopussy was another really weird one it's also not really a bond story like the short story not the movie as far as i know it has nothing to do with the movie and it's about a villain who betrayed MI6 and was hiding out in the Caribbean and he like he like murders another guy or something. There's there's a few things that happen, but Bond shows up at the very end to convince this guy to commit suicide. So there's that, I guess. That's <laughs> weird. I mean, honestly, Bond it's is really a, weird. A, a license to kill, but like, is the suicide supposed to like, hey, uh, if you do this, it's a lot easier in everybody type situation? Pretty much, yeah. Like, he's like, you know why I'm here? Like, he's like the Grim Reaper in the story. Like, this guy, the whole time, he's kind of like, you know, his, his time's running out, basically. Like, he knows it, and when Bond shows up, he's like, yeah, I'm fucked. And um, Bond's like, you know, there's there's one of two ways this ends, you know? <laughs> and so the guy, you know, he lets him take his own life. It's like an honorable thing to do, I guess. It's It's kind of a weird one, but definitely interesting. 
the funny thing about Four Guys Only is that it's a very M-centric story, but the movie is the only movie without M. <laughs> it's mostly because uh, Bernard Shaw died so, yeah. from cancer. <laughs> I mean, there's a good reason. It's just, it's kind of odd that that was the one, you know? I think Bill Tanner plays his part. I haven't caught up to that one yet, but uh, yeah, Bill Tanner, I think, takes all of her M's parts. In the story, though, it's it's another one of those things where M is sending Bond on a personal mission. And this one, he's he's like out to get revenge for someone. So, okay. I mean, uh, we always forget that M in the novel series and the movie wasn't, not, not a double O agent, but he's been in the intelligence agent's you know, lifestyle for a long time. That's why he's the boss. Not because yeah, he's a he's bureaucrat. Been the trenches. Yeah, he, he was part of the OSS back in the day. And you gotta think, this is when it was written in the 50s, he was in the war as a younger person, as a you know, commander or something. So like, he knows what it is to write down on a piece of paper, you need to kill all these 40 people. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then- Kind of a hard ass. Yeah, definitely. And that comes across in the books too. I actually really like the way Fleming writes M. He's, he's one of my favorite characters in the books so far. I will um, say some of the novels I've read so far referred to M also as a previous naval experience, mostly because mm -hmm. uh, the pipe he smokes, it's kind of like an effect he took over when he was in the Navy. I could see that. I think in the movies, his office has like some model ships or something like there's maybe some hints at that. <laughs> um, so I think uh, From a View to a Kill is probably my favorite of the short stories. It was just a really intense like mission. Like uh, once again, it has nothing to do with the movie. Uh, I think it does take place in Paris, but it's basically like a, a chase scene. The whole story is like a chase scene. Like someone stole some confidential information and there's a motorcycle chase. And that's about it, you know? <laughs> um, nice. I don't get too many to chase it, scenes in my books. Fun. Yeah, there's there's only like one or two chase scenes I can think of. One a motorcycle, one a car. Um, yeah. Every Bond novel, yeah, every Bond novel I read so far is he had a Jaguar at one point and he was really into Bentleys. So, yeah, in the, in the early books, he has a Bentley. And I yeah. think it gets wrecked at one point. <laughs> Funny callback, uh, the novel Forever and a Day, which is a prequel, his yeah. Bentley is destroyed. <laughs> yeah, he's obsessed with his Bentley. Like, like I think he's more upset about that than Vesper's death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's all I have on the short stories. What, what do you got next? Carte Blanche? Okay. Yes, so I, I'm, I'm going to preface this with this is my favorite overall book that I read post-Fleming. Uh, it completely resets the Bond timeline to 2011. Uh, in fact, oh. that's the start of his double O career. It makes him a 30-year-old Afghanistan veteran working for a third-party non-governmental agency. It's not exactly MI6, but it's kind of tied to MI6. It's the, it's, the double O program is not an official, it's sanctioned, but it's not sanctioned, quote-unquote. Um, there's a lot going on in this novel, including a very, very, very smart villain. Um, okay. The villain has a great plan. It's actually really nice. <laughs> uh, so again, Bond's in his 30s, contemporary. He used to fight Al Qaeda. So like it's it's, it's very, like a modern reboot. Yeah, and this is I mean this is after Casino Royale. Mm, so okay. I mean, but it, it, he re completely resets. This is uh, written by Jeffrey Deaver, which is he didn't write any more Bonds after this. But I was like, man, I could. I could read these books. Um, it opens with, it has a cold open and everything. Mm, He's nice. in Belgrade trying to stop uh, some guy named the uh, Irishman. And turns out the Irishman is a henchman for the eventual bad guy. 
but the Irishman decides to derail a train like right after a meeting like whoa that's out of left field because uh, there's some chemicals on this train that's going to like wipe out a whole village full of people like it's the same chemicals that were in the Bhopal explosion in uh, India you know like killed 44,000 people or something like that it's the same kind of chemicals so he's like oh no Bonds there's a Bond stops it um, and then goes back to England because there's this huge uh, in the wires everyone's like there's this big plot coming up we don't know what it is but because this this novel sets back Bond's history completely to scratch, they take all the good elements of Bond's past and bring them forward contemporary. So Bond's nice. ex-Naval Reserve, his dad and mom both died in a mountaineering accident. There's a subplot where Bond is investigating old KGB files to figure out if there's a steel cartridge uh, left behind by the bodies uh, when they died, if it was a murder by the KGB or not. Uh, so he actually has... Ophelia Badenstone. Yes, that is definitely a Bond girl name. Helping him. <laughs> she's she's a, a contemporary of his. She's not his assistant. Actually, his assistant is Mary Goodnight. I thought that was great. So they yeah. bring her on. Um, but Bond dry, has an old 60s Jag. He has spent all of his uh, inheritance money on a Bentley. So, I mean, like, it's very, hey, this is this is Bond as you remember, but he's not really Bond. Uh, but remember, the book is called Carte Blanche. And that's because... Bond gets carte blanche when he's overseas, when he's a spy overseas. But when he's in the British territory, he has to file paperwork. He can't carry a gun. He can't do all sorts of things. It's just, it's, yeah, they basically neuter him because he's supposed to be a covert op for British MI6. It's kind of like the CIA is not allowed to operate on U.S. soil. So yeah, it's, it's, exactly. The FBI, yeah. you know, handles stuff here. CIA is overseas mostly. Yeah. So the bad guy's name is Severus Severin. I mean, come on, that's just a great bad guy name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something on the wires that everyone knows he's the bad guy, and it's very well thought of, but he's super creepy, loves death. They find it. he um, is a owner of a uh, waste disposal company that is basically like international. Um, he is a order of the British Knight because he gives so much to charity. Uh, but they find like, a, I mean, the stuff that they find a dead body in the dumpster because, I mean, people throw out dead bodies all the time. And he just takes a bunch of... <laughs> He takes a bunch of photos of the dead bodies. Like, leave that for later so I can look at it. Like, it, he's just a really creepy oh, dude. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so, he's planning something. Nobody really knows what's going on, and the Irishman works for him. Um, Bond goes to investigate. Almost gets blown up. Like, it's very well thought out. Q Branch exists in this one, and it's headed by a smart-ass Indian dude. Like, holy crap! His one gadget he really uses a lot in this book is a phone, and they call it. Oh. It's basically like, this is 2011, so the iPhone was existing, and they call it the IQ phone. It's kind of like the, the nickname for it. But it has capabilities to long tell it, like listen to fo- like uh, voices far away. He can bug stuff. He controls a lot of like different things with that app on his phone, like he listens to bugs. He can read uh, lips with the phone, like it watches the video and then gives him a transcription and stuff. It's, it's a smartphone, but that's really his only gadget. He has a gun. That makes a lot of sense, though. Like, yeah. uh, you know, like our modern cell phones are kind of like old school Bond gadgets. It's like it's a phone, but it's also a camera and you can record stuff on it. And yeah, and it's not too over the top. It's like at one, point he has to, at one point, <laughs> like he has to break into ridiculous. a building and they're like, oh, I'm thinking, oh, God, they're going to give me like some sort of like phone hacking device. No. Yeah. The, he sends a picture of the like the 
keypad to Q branch. He's like, yeah, you can't break into that. So James like sneaks a wire under the door and trips the uh, security <laughs> exit. So it's like, it's very like well done. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's clever. One thing that he gets a lot of help from because he's not allowed to do a lot of work on British territory is that he calls Renee Mathis, which is a name that we don't see in for a oh, while. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Renee Mathis is 35 in this. And I think he's a character in Casino Royale as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, in the movie in Casino Royale, in uh, yeah. So in the book, I don't know about that, but yeah, in the in the novel, in the movie, Renee Mathis is in two movies: Quantum of Sol- uh, Quantum Solace, and uh, Casino Royale. But mm-hmm. everyone knows Mar- uh, Mathis from there. But in this one, he's 35 years old, and James and him are friends. And he's like, "Hey, I know you guys spy on us sometimes. Can you give me some help?" So, <laughs> um. Side plot, because Bond in this one is very, um, he cares about women, and, and he doesn't just sleep around in this one, so that's really weird. He actually likes the Philly Maidenstone. She just got out of a relationship, but he refuses to, like, hook up with her because he thinks she still is, like, into her ex-type situation, so I'm like, wow, that's very unbond-like of you. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's, yeah. That's kind of cool, like, to see, you know, Bond growing as a person. <laughs> Yeah. Um, anyway, Bond ends up fake. The guy escapes to South. Not escapes. The bad guy goes to South Africa. Now they're still trying to figure out like what his big plan is. Uh, Bond pretends to be a fake arms trader, and like Q Branch and everyone helps him set up this like cool fake background. Um, and so Bond gets in with the guy. The guy likes him. I mean, they even have like a fake like kill this guy or else you're you know you're out of the plan and. Bond pulls the trigger and turns out to be a fake bullet, but they're like, okay, now we trust you. It's Bond is like over his head because this is his first like real mission, maybe second mission. Um, mm-hmm. But the clock is ticking. So it turns out this is the best part of the plot. The waste disposal guy actually runs like a shredder company. Like, uh, hey, uh, we need to shred these confidential documents. Government agencies want the shredders on site. And everyone else kind of sends his documents to him in like a special rig. Like we, we have this nowadays. I think an Iron Mountain up the street does it. But this guy has developed a system to shred documents, turn them basically into dust, and everyone's holy crap, nobody can put our stuff back together again. Well, it turns out the guy built cameras and all these shredders, so he steals all the information when it's shredding the document, and he finds out, oh, I can start blackmailing people, and then another company's like, hey, uh, we want you to kill somebody. And he's like, because they want to kill like a pharmaceutical rep that has developed this like super cool thing, but it's gonna bankrupt the pharmaceutical company. And yeah. so the, the guy steals the documents from Serbia about this super secret weapon that everyone knows Serbia has, but nobody's like, there's not on the black market yet. The whole reason that the Irish guy was in Serbia was not to like blow up that town with like chemicals, but to steal some Serbian metal so it would look like the Serbians killed this one guy. But <laughs> they're going to blame it on the Serbians by using a, a weapon that they stole from their documents. Super crazy. Uh, Bond ends up stopping the, the bad guy and the Irishman killed the bad guy because he technically worked working someone else. So there's like a whole, this is, this is the best part of the novel. It doesn't end with 20 yeah. pages left and Bond has to figure out who the bad guy is. It still has like, <laughs> still has like 40, 50 pages left. Like you actually get a full conclusion to the story. Oh, nice. The coolest part is M in this one is super ruthless. And when he finds out about the whole plot to um, steal uh, documents, he's like, well, we could just do that. We'll just take over this guy's position in the company. I'm like, what? So you get to see Great Britain be like, yeah, we're not that good anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. I mean, that's it's kind of cool to show that gray area. You don't get that a whole lot. 
Yeah. But that's carte blanche, and I thought it was the best of the new novels, and I'm really sad that Jeffrey Deaver didn't read anything more after that, because I think his new take on Bond would have been a good post-Fleming look. It was very contemporary, and uh, yeah. That sounds awesome, man. I got to check that one out. So the last one that I read, or am still reading, (laughs) is Thunderball. Uh, This one's surprisingly close to the movie. Um, And it's probably because it was written, I think it was the first one written for the screen. Um, And I think it was written around the time that Dr. No was in pre-production, if I'm not mistaken. the book actually opens with Bond, like I mentioned, uh, the book actually opens with Bond recovering from a hangover. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't get a cold open action scene with the jetpack. Um, hey, that but... jetpack was the best thing to happen to the screen Bond because, <laughs> no, honestly, this, this shows that, that hey, we have special effects. This is what we can do. We're never yeah. going to use it again. <laughs> well, I don't know if we actually mentioned this so far, but Bond in the books almost never has gadgets. No, uh, in fact, I had to call it out in the last one. I was like, hey, he has tools in his shoe. Like, mm-hmm. holy crap, that's a real gadget. And yeah. everything everything so far, Major Boothroad actually gives him more support and more documents. And hey, we can counterfeit stuff. Hey, we can get you places. It's, there's no like spring-loaded knives that like, you know, have hissing pieces or other. Uh, there, there's, there's no gadgets at all. I mean, like in the Fleming novels, occasionally the villains will have like, weird or unique weapons but bond himself rarely gets his own like cool equipment so i thought that was kind of kind of interesting i didn't really know that going in initially but yeah uh one thing i thought was really cool about uh thunderball was um you know this was the book that introduced both blofeld and specter but the way that blofeld is described in full detail was kind of interesting because coming from the movies like you know he's a shadowy figure for like six movies you know, before you really get to see him. Um, and right away in the books, like we get his full backstory and everything. We really? get to know him. Yeah, we get to know Blofeld more before we get to know like his organization, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it kind of introduces him and then it talks about how he's the guy sitting at the end of the table and he's having his Spectre meeting and uh, he electrocutes one of the guys for failing him basically. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a really cool scene, very well written, and it kind of reminded me of the way he's introduced in the movie Spectre. It's almost like they pulled that directly from the Thunderball book. Except, yeah, see, I didn't I think, mind Blofeld in the movie Thunderball because they go to that uh, displaced persons charity or whatever, and then like they go into like the giant room, like yeah, in the middle of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, I thought it was it was really cool, like. Um, just you know kind of you know really good world building in this book um from what i've read so far is blowfield the main villain or is largo still there largo is definitely the main villain but it does a good like i said it does a good job of really establishing who blowfield is and that he's the real threat behind everything and what's interesting is they talk a lot about or fleming talks a lot about everyone who's sitting at that table and how they have connections to different crime families and um, a couple former people from Smirsh are there. So in a way, it's kind of like connecting to some of the previous novels because these are people that, or organizations that Bond has come across in the past. 
and now they're all under one, you know, umbrella. Which yeah, is awesome. I thought it was ham-fisted in the movies. Like, oh yeah, we've been behind everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even though I think Quantum was a good one. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Quantum was a good one, but like, hey, Blofeld was also Quantum, and also we have this giant eyes wide shut party where all the crime people get together. Like, it, that made no sense to me. So. Yeah, I, you know, I like the Daniel Craig movies a lot, but that last movie. I have a love-hate relationship with it. There's a lot of cool stuff in there, but it seems like they tried to cram too much into one movie. Like, that should have been two separate movies. If they wanted to really build up the Blofeld stuff, they had to introduce that, like, earlier to have any impact, you know? Waste of Christoph Waltz, too, so... Yeah, I mean, he's good, but... Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, as I mentioned before on the podcast, though, these movies, they were made completely out of order. And so this kind of becomes an issue when you're adapting this, these books, the later books, which is often referred to as the Blofeld trilogy, because you have Thunderball, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and then you only live twice. But it's out of order in the movies, and I think it works so much better thematically. Um, yeah, we only meet Blofeld and you only live twice in the movies because, hey, oh my God, yeah. it's Donald Pleasance, so... So yeah, that's all I have for Thunderball. Which one are you currently in? So I'm actually currently on Forever in a Day, which is actually the prequel to Casino Royale. But I did finish Solo. Now, Solo takes place in 1969, and it's based on the actual chronology of the Ian Fleming books, which makes Bond 45 years old. He was born in 1924 (laughs) in the movies. Uh, He he actually uses the obituary from You Only Live Twice to kind of flesh out like Bond's career in life. Um, oh, that's cool. Solo actually takes place in 1969. He goes from, you know, all the 50s stuff, and then 1969, yeah. he has another mission. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's really, really cool. That's a cool concept, making it like a period piece. Bond actually has a lot of PTSD and nightmares from fighting in the war. Uh, he was in the he was in France the day after D-Day, actually working undercover, trying to find information on German communications. He was with uh, intelligence. So, yeah. but, I mean, he wakes up. At a hotel he's at, he, he treats him, it was this, this movie, the movie, sorry, the book starts on his birthday, and he rented a, uh, a nice room in the city, and he goes down to breakfast, and has four eggs, six pieces of bacon, and a cigarette, plus a whole pot of coffee. I'm like, this is like old school <laughs> fun. Like, this is the way they wrote it back in the day. Um, yeah. He's super, he's super melancholy in this book. He's very depressed, and he always, since he's 45, he's getting up there in age, and he, um, okay. he's constantly going after younger girls, but it's in a very creepy, leery way. In fact, specifically, uh, there's a society-style lady that he meets at the hotel, and at first he mm-hmm. thinks she's an agent, and he actually breaks into her house because she's, she invites him to a party, like a cocktail party. Yeah. Um, but he, he goes to the house, and he's like, oh, well, I mean, I can see into the window. I see stuff laid out, like little finger sandwiches and like a whole bar and stuff like that, um, but nobody's there. Nobody's at the party at all. She's like, He's like, oh, my God, is she a spy? Is she going to kill me or something? Uh, so he... <laughs> He breaks into her house. Uh, he actually has a knife in the shoe, which is a standard Q issue branch thing, which I'm, I'm glad they call that out. Like, this is his only gadget. I have a knife in a shoe. Um, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> he, break, he breaks into well, her that's house. That's a real thing. Yeah. That was a real thing and back in the day. She pulls up like an, like 30 minutes later in a, uh, her car is towed to her house. And turns out she got into like an accident or something like that. And she, she goes into the house and calls her friend on the phone because there was no cell phone. She actually had to go in and make a landline call. I'm like, I'm sorry, I had to cancel everything. I got into a wreck, blah, blah, blah. And so he's still in the house. Like he, he overhears the conversation. He's like, 
well shit i mean i'm here <laughs> and the, the girl like gets undressed and he's like he's peeping tom on this shit and it's like really creepy like i had to read three pages of this stuff um but th this book actually was really well written um the plot of it is bond is sent by m to this fictionalized western african country it's kind of based on like nigeria uh oh, okay the country finds oil one half of the country that has the oil on it is like hey you guys aren't managing the country correctly we're going to start our own country and we have the oil and then so there's like a civil war going on and oh. the british are on the side of the non-oil people bond is sent down there to stop the oil people by whatever means necessary supposed to stop a war quote unquote uh yeah. Ren renee mathis again renee mathis helps yeah. him set up, the, set up helps him set up the cover uh, that he is a British journalist that works for a French newspaper. And the French are apparently on the side of the rebels in this civil war. So like they love the French. Um, he goes down there, his contact in country is a 27 year old smart ass girl that he is, uh, he's like, yeah, again, he's older. And so he sees her like really creepily. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they go into the whole like thing. Uh, they have to go to a place 150 miles away from your lands and country. And it's a two day trip overland. And I was like, why is it gonna take so long? Oh yeah, this was 1969. People had to drive, like, you know, like the cars aren't like nowadays where they're like climate controlled and driving over roads. This is an African country <laughs> in the middle of a civil war in a crappy little like VW. So yeah, it takes a while yeah, to go. It doesn't those. sound like fun. In the middle of a war. Yeah, so there's no, there's no roads or anything like that. Uh, Bond eventually is close to the border of the rebel territory. And then he and the girl are kidnapped. The girl's apparently killed and uh, Bond escapes from like an ambush or something. Uh, he puts us a few days around the rebel, rebel side. Uh, the guy who kidnapped him finds out that he's a journalist. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry I kidnapped you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Bond plays the journalist up. Like he's basically stuck on, this is like if, uh, like say Argentina were having a civil war and we sent some of our people down there from CNN. CNN's sitting on the rebel yeah. side, like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna invite you to talk to our leaders. We're gonna invite you to talk to like, hey, we still have a functioning government. Like, it's not a bad thing. But Bond's like, I'm not actually a journalist. I want to kill people when we do things. Um, <laughs> so Bond finds out the whole deal. He actually helps the rebels at one point. Now, don't forget, the, the British are on the side of the, the main government, and he's technically pretending to be with the rebels, but he actually helps the rebels like with a battle maneuver because he used to be in World War II. Like, he understands like tactics and stuff. So he actually helps the rebels in like one point to like defeat the, the good guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he finds out that the rebel side has like a medicine man who inspires the troops. Uh, Bond temporarily kidnaps him and the rebel leader dies and everything kind of goes to crap and the Brit Brits take over the territory and everyone wins, yay. But Bond, <laughs> turns, out, turns out the girl didn't actually die. She oh, switched really? to the rebel side. She was on the rebel side the entire time and then shoots Bond. Cut to Holy crap. five weeks later and Bond is actually been in a hospital recovering for five weeks. You're like, Holy crap, again, this is a very weird Bond layout because it's very melancholy and very down. Bond's not at his A-game, he's older now. M gives him a month off. It's like, hey, you went through a war, blah, blah, blah. Take take some time, to do as much as you need. Um, but stay in country, you need to recover. And Bond's like, no, I'm gonna kill this bitch that shot me. And so he goes solo. And the problem is, Secret agents aren't supposed to go solo. You're supposed to be sanctioned. Right. You're, you're you're killing for the crown. We have to know why you killed somebody. You can't just be like, we have a license to kill. Go hog wild. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, so he goes rogue like he does in the Daniel Craig movies. Yeah, so he, um, 
eventually figures it away, track down the people who backed the, there's a, there's a guy who was the money backer of the war. Turns out, uh, skip it ahead, he owned land where the oil was. And so he wanted the rebels to win because he owned that land through the rebels. Uh, so he was back in the war. He tracks down those people. They turns out they're in America. So Bond flies to DC and he finds the charity that moved from England to DC. Uh, he had to go through a whole thing where he technically he hooked up with that girl again from the beginning of the book and he stole yeah. her passport. And so he used that passport, took it to a forger because he can't go through Q branch, had the passport forged with his name. It was, it was like, this is really detailed for Bond just stealing some lady's passport. Like he had to hook up with this older lady and that she's about his age too. So that's even better. Like he, he's actually like being nice by staying with someone his age. Um, he goes to DC. Yeah. He finds out what the charity is. He rents an office nearby. This is all done in cash. He like had a car, got a rental. He goes into a gun store in DC and he realized, holy crap, this is really easy to buy guns in the US. He buys a 50 caliber <laughs> rifle and a handgun. Oh my and God. like a sniper scope and stuff like that. Like I think actually the author wrote the, the rifle wrong because later on in the book he shoots it and he didn't take his freaking arm off. Like you don't, that's not a rifle you use. This like, get a smaller rifle. Um, yeah. <laughs> turns out the girl worked for the CIA. And you're like, whoa, 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 she shot Bond. But no, she actually shot it to keep him alive. Like she knew where to shoot him type thing. Oh, uh, the C- cool. The CIA come around and turns out the CIA officer in charge of the whole operation is Felix's nephew. So Felix is mm-hmm. retired now because he lost his arm and leg, but he still works for like a private company down in uh, Miami. He ends up coming up to help Bond out. Um, in fact, my notes say in this timeline, Felix has still lost an arm and a leg in Florida. When did that book come out again? Well, you just told me. It was the second freaking book. So Yeah, <laughs> early 50s, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the bad guy finds out that the girl is actually CIA. She gets killed. Um, again, before that, just right before that, though, it's, again, a melancholy book. Bond loves food, and he treats himself to basically <laughs> the equivalent of a $200 lunch at a steakhouse. They even give a recipe. This, this book has a recipe in it for a specific salad dressing. Like, there's a little asterisk and a footnote. I had to click the button and it would show me on my tablet. Like, oh, so I actually copied and pasted. We might throw it in the, the episode notes if you want to know James Bond's vinaigrette recipe. So it's really good. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very garlic and vinegar we have, to, we have to remember to put the Vesper in there, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, because Bond is solo, the CIA are trying to get him off U.S. territory, and that the Brits are like, what are you even doing in the U.S.? You're supposed to be, like, recovering in Scotland. Uh, he goes for broke, and he decides to attack the compound that everyone's at. Uh, he kills the dude, uh, the bad guy lieutenant out in charge of everything, by pushing, like, a 200-pound rock onto his shoulder, like, from, a, like, above a building and stuff. It's crazy. Um, but it turns out the leader of the charity was killed a long time ago. The rebel leader, who died, again, quote-unquote, He's still alive, but now he's hooked on heroin because they're trying to keep him around because he technically would be able to sign contracts from the old territory. It's very confusing in that part. But the lieutenant who Bond killed, the body's missing when they go look for it later. So like, what, did he really die or didn't he really die? Bond goes to hook up with that older lady again, but there's a warning left at the house where they're at. And so Bond has to leave her and he left a note, like a very like sad note, like, I'm sorry, I really liked being with you, but I can't. And he can't tell her why, because he's a secret agent. Damn. And yeah. so it ends on a very downer note. The whole book sounds like a downer. It sounds it, pretty the whole dark. Book, it, it, it's an <laughs> older Bond, like, not living his best life. He's well, just, and it's a period piece, which is 
kind of interesting. Yeah, you got to think, this is, uh, again, exactly left off from Ian Fleming books. If Ian Fleming didn't write a book for 10 years, boom, here's this book. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, which, this is funny, because I ended, like, I would say that would be at the end of Bond's career, because figured you could only be a secret agent until you're about 50 before your knees start giving out, and he gives, <laughs> right. he gets to become the I'm next man or something. Roger Moore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he looks I, like he's 70 in A View to a Kill. <laughs> uh, so one thing I totally forgot to mention with Casino Rail is that it does talk about how Bond got his double O license, you know, how he got into the double O program. But it doesn't do it like at the very beginning because Fleming doesn't really use cold opens. Yeah, it, it does talk about like how he had these these two missions where he had to, you know, kill people basically <laughs> and that's like how he got his double o status but uh um yeah fleming doesn't really use cold opens but from russia with love the first half of the book is from the villain's point of view which i thought was kind of interesting also that that book kind of ends a little ambiguously apparently fleming kind of wanted to kill bond off like a whole um sherlock oh, holmes type situation yeah like at the end of the book if i'm rem- remembering this correctly so Cleb has the shoe knife and it's poison and she kicks Bond with it at one point and it's kind of left like open like, oh, is he going to die now? Like that's how the book ends, you know? In researching the Fleming novels, at least the ones I haven't read, there was a couple interesting notes. Um, in Dr. No, the way the villain dies is he's crushed by bat Crushed by what bat What the heck? Yeah, it's so random. I had, Like I said, I haven't read these ones, but I was like, all right. <laughs> uh, in Goldfinger, I was shocked to learn that Oddjob actually talks, apparently. Huh. Which is kind of weird. Uh, an aside, one of the novels I had, um, Bond was in an airplane. This is actually, I think, in the Zero Minus Ten. Bond is in the airplane above the Australian Outback. And someone has a gun to him, and Bond says something like, uh, I wouldn't fire that in here. I know something happened once to a little Korean fella. So... That's oh. a straight call out to Goldfinger's odd job. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and then um, in You Only Live Twice, um, Blofeld goes undercover as Shatterhand. And the book ends with Bond killing him with his bare hands, like choking him to death for the murder of Tracy. Look at that. So like, yeah. I thought that was kind of cool, you know, because it, you know, my problem with Diamonds Are Forever is that it just feels so anticlimactic, you know, especially after <laughs> the death of Tracy in the previous movie. So it's cool to see. Where is she? Sort of, Where is she? Yeah. So there's sort of like some conclusion there. There's like, you know, they kind of wrap up that story in the books. You were halfway through Thunderball, but I actually was reading Forever and a Day, which is a solid prequel to Casino Royale. Um, and again, a little hand-fisted the way they shove some of the, like, the tropes in there, like this is why Bond does this. But I'm halfway through the book and I'm not, I'm not minding it so far, but uh, turns out- Is this out the another author, modernized one? No, no, it oh, takes place- that's interesting. Takes place in, uh, right before Casino Royale in Corsican, France. So, like, this is nice. right about 1950, 1949, somewhere around there. Wow. Um, yeah, 1950. So, the book opens, 007 is dead. But, it's <laughs> 007, the agent is dead. So, Oh, M, that's amazing. M and Bill Tanner decided to promote one of their other agents who just finished some of his uh, kills. He had to kill two guys. 
Yeah, yeah. One of them was in Japan, I want to say. Did they mention that? Uh, well, this one, they killed a guy in Amsterdam, and I'm not sure if they killed a guy. In, oh, yeah. They killed a guy in Japan with a sniper rifle. Yeah, um, that's in the, that's in Casino Rail. Yeah, and then uh, he, had, he had to kill a, a traitor from World War II in Amsterdam. He guts him in his sleep, but he wakes the guy up, and then, like, it cold-bloodedly kills him. And that kind of follows him around the book. Like, I just killed a guy. Like, in, like not just a sniper rifle. Like, you can't see him, but, like, I killed a guy with a knife to his throat. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, James apparently knew the old agent as well. They were friend friendly. They're, they work in the same building. James was more of a, uh, I would guess the equivalent of, like I said, the, the single O division, not a double O division. Like he still has some limits and controls, but the double O, it's like carte blanche. You get, go, go do your thing. Um, mm-hmm. But M gives him a choice. He's like, hey, there's a double, there's a O11 and a double O8. Um, M actually doesn't have in the book series uh, he doesn't like sequences. There's no 001, 002, 003, because he says the enemy can figure out our plans from there. So he does the whole, like, Texas yeah. pig trick. So he's like, uh, we're going to do this out of sequence. Yeah, the Texas pig trick, if you don't know, is you, you release three pigs in the school and you name, you put a 01, an 02, and an 04 on there. So the authorities keep looking for the 03 for forever. For it's, the it's, third. <laughs> so, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so M doesn't like uh, sequences, and he's like, well, you can pick any number. I'm thinking that you can do this one or this one. And James is like, you know what? I'm going to take 007 because, uh, one, it shows the enemy that just because you kill us by a number doesn't mean there's not someone right behind them. And two, yep. he, the guy was my friend. Um, anyway, he goes to Corsican, France. Uh, he finds the info that the old agent left, and he almost kills a CIA agent, which his name is Reed Griffith, which seems like a Felix Leiter stand-in. Like, mm. down to the description. I haven't gotten to the end of the book. If it turns out to be Felix with the, the code name, I'm going to laugh my ass off. Um, yeah, do... I guess Bond first meets Felix in Casino Rail, so that would make sense that they would have to have another stand-in. Yeah, th- this guy is Felix to the T, though. Like, I would <laughs> I would not be surprised if it's Felix. That's um, great. <laughs> So the two books I've read so far have gone into very extreme detail on some of these games, but this time they go into blackjack. I'm like, well, I understand blackjack, so I'll read this mm. section and not be bored to my death. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a girl, she's in, in charge. The funny thing is, this is a call out to a previous book I've read where in Jamaica, a name of the estate is Shame Lady. And mm. apparently it's a flower that grows in Jamaica. So this girl's nickname is Shame Lady. And like, huh? Weird. So have, has that come up in any of your books so far? Not that I recall. <laughs> okay. So it, it, it's it's come up in two of my books so far. The the term shame lady in refer, reference to a flower in Jamaica. Mm. So I guess okay. again, this this guy. I might have missed it. No, There's it's not a lot you. Of details. This this guy <laughs> goes into ham-fisted way of like, hey, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Kind of like the Star Wars prequels. Hey, R two D two exists. Let's show yeah. them. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, like Anakin made C three PO all that crap. <laughs> The main bad guy is a French guy that kind of reminds me of Kingpin from the Marvel novels. Like he's a big, large man who doesn't use guns. He beats people half to death with his fists. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Now, the only, uh, the book pretty much ends at this point, but I didn't want to call out that the reason that Bond in this novel starts drinking vodka martinis, shaken, Mm. not stirred, is because the lady, the bad bad girl slash agent slash, I don't know what she is. She's a Bond girl. she was divorced and her husband said, well, you never shake a martini because it bruises the liquor and you, you wanted to stir it. And she's like, I never listened to a single damn thing my ex-husband said. <laughs> so so that's why she drinks shaken martinis because you're supposed to stir them. And I think he took the affectation from her. 
So I haven't reached the end of the novel. Um, halfway through it, yeah, it's he, he he takes a lot of things. In fact, uh, he definitely gets his watch the way he always watch wears a you know like a good solid watch. And he, he steals a watch from somebody in this book too. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a dead body, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, they don't need it. Yeah, um, that, that's where I'm at with that. That sounds that sounds interesting. Uh, so, how would you rank these out of the ones you read? Like, uh, I already said flat out carte blanche. If I had, a, I read, I'm um, on six novels. Carte blanche, top of the list. I think it's a great <sighs> reboot of James Bond. It's hmm. smart. There's the the elements they take as the core of James Bond work. Uh, he didn't go overboard. I would love to see more. Obviously, Anthony Horowitz is now on his second James Bond novel, so he wrote Forever in a Day, which I'm currently reading, and he wrote another one. Um, I, I haven't read that one. I might continue reading these just because they've been good so far. I don't know if I'm going to go back and read any more Gardner novels. I never read 14 novels, but they just seem kind of antiquated. Uh, just Plus, that's a lot. <laughs> oh, well, don't even get me started. I've read all the Discworld novels. There's 41 of those. I've read 53 Shadowrun novels. I have no problem reading the series. <laughs> I'm not jumping into something unless it's worth it. Um, yeah. So I would say Carte Blanche by Jeffrey Deaver and Zero Minus Ten by Raymond Benson. I think Zero Minus Ten was a good semi-reboot. And then especially I really like the novel took on very something contemporary where we're dealing with uh, Hong Kong's changeover. Like it, it was it was good to me. Nice. Um, the worst of the series I would say is Win, Lose, or Die because when Bond is on that Navy ship and he's like being a security agent, it just... There's so much extraneous detail that is not necessary, and Bond's trying to solve like a murder, and then there's something else going on. Like nothing would be allowed to happen on this boat. Like this boat would have been docked off the coast of nowhere with nobody else around. Like they wouldn't just put this yeah. thing where they put it. Like they put it off the coast of like Italy. No, no, that's not going to happen, buddy. So yeah, <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Seafire uh, wasn't as bad. I like how they did go to the U.S. and they brought Felix Leiter in. It just no, I'm, I don't, I don't know where you stand. I mean, Solo by William Boyd. I just described period piece. I think. It was sad, but I liked seeing old Bond. This is kind of like watching, reading the book or watching the movie Logan. You know, like yeah. where it's, it's old Logan. Like this is, that, that was the like, hey, you're seeing him kind of falter. Uh, that would have been nice to see more from Wayne Boyd. He didn't write anything else. Uh, Raymond Benson and John Garner both wrote multiple novel series, and now we're it's a piecemeal. Uh, like hey, the Amy Fleming Foundation is like you get to write one, you get to write one. No, we didn't like this one. You only get to write one. It's that's how they're doing it. That's kind of kind of interesting. It's a it's an interesting approach for sure. They're, it sounds like they're jumping all over the place now. Um, so yeah, whenever you said solo, I kept thinking like solo a Star Wars story. It's oh, like solo. A uh, I got story, confused you know? multiple times, and also when I'm trying to type it in my Goodreads to track it, it's it confused yeah. me every time. <laughs> I think so Thunderball was number one. Well, no, well, sorry, uh, no, no, uh, Moonraker. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely got to go with Moonraker as the best out of these. I think Thunderball, even though I haven't finished it, it's probably a close second. I would probably put Casino Rail above the short stories. Uh, those are kind of middle of the road, and then definitely Live and Let Die at the very bottom of the list. <laughs> Unfortunately, like it, you know, it has some really good redeeming qualities, but it's just a problematic book. <laughs> So I do want to give a quick shout out to Audible. All the Bond books are on Audible. What's cool is the Fleming novels are read by like famous British uh, actors. So you have like Thunderball's read by Jason Isaacs. 
you know, from Star Trek Discovery and Harry nice. Potter. He's he's Malfoy's dad. Um, Moonraker is read by Bill Nye. Uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is actually read by David Tennant. Uh, really? The doctor? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, Man with the Golden Gun is read by Kenneth Branagh. And Octopussy is read by frickin' Tom Hiddleston. Nice. Yeah. And although I, I didn't I didn't love Octopussy, I thought that Tom Hiddleston did a good job reading it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this was fun. Um, I'm glad we got to really dive into all this. Yeah, I mean, I'll be 100 honest. I don't see myself reading the In Fleming novels, especially after reading the more contemporary novels, just because There's a couple good ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've read a lot of novels from the past, and yeah, In Fleming has a history of. Well, like you said, problematic language from where like where he describes oh, yeah. things, and so like for me to the jump straight books, into it, they're, yeah. they're all overflowing with misogyny for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'm glad that we got the movies out of them because mm, especially definitely. if you guys aren't listening to podcasters assemble, you're listening to this freaking feed, so you have to be listening at some point. <laughs> um, we're now in the Roger Moore camp series. Yeah. I think it's worse from here. Like I mean, we're on. Moonraker comes out in uh, Monday, I believe. We're recording this on a Thursday, yeah. Um, and that, that, that's that's just camp. But it, I would say, uh, for your eyes only, great movie, decent, holds up. Um, I think so. Yeah, I was surprised. The thriller part of it is a, it's it's a good part of the series because right after that we have a few uh, new kill and uh, yeah, uh, great song, terrible. It's movie. A, it's it's. <laughs> It's so bad it's good, though. It's fun to watch, you know? It's, yeah, it's uh, actually, I, I'll probably mention this in the episode. I don't want to go too long here, but... Sure, um, sure, sure. Roger Moore described it as one of the most violent bonds just because of what Max Zorn does with the whole gunning people wow. down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does throw someone out of a blimp at one point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, looking forward to that one. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at Significant Otter Co. on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook, too. You can find me at Justin Aki on all the socials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, graphic designer. I draw pretty pictures sometimes. People pay me. so Awesome. And uh, you can find me at Eric Slater. That's Eric with a K, Slater with a D, D as in dog. And I am also, you know, all over the place. I, I guess I don't need to go into my other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll... Uh, we'll Catch you on the next episode. Yep. Podcasters Assemble. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. Um, so actually pause for one second. I want to, I want to check my playback because it's giving me a little, uh, weirdness right quick. Yeah, you're good, man. See you for one second. Okay. Recording again. Here's a snap. There we go. Cool. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, there you go. I just want to make sure it was getting all our stuff there. I think there's like a conversation. Sorry. My things actually, I didn't record. That's my, my bad. uh, That's, that's actually on me.
Shit, no, uh, no, do we need to... Sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, that's okay. We're already like so far just my recording. We're at an hour and thirty-four minutes, so probably can do without like wrap up. Oh yeah, no worries. You're good. You're good. <laughs> well, I'll I'll edit around it. It's all good. Yeah. Come on, motherfucker. Stop. Okay. Let me see if they'll right, rec- so- hit record now. Let me see if they hits it. Nope. It where where that snap come from? I don't know where this damn thing got from. I might have to send you two tracks. <laughs> okay. Now we're good. Sorry. That was um. Yeah, I think you're gonna have to take it from the Zoom because I can't find my note on that one. This is kind of how it goes sometimes with this sort of stuff. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> oh, I forgot to rank mine, didn't I? Yeah, I need to hear. Oh your shit! Sorry.